your Bibles this morning. Let's turn to the book of Job today. Job chapter 26. As you know, we have been coming through the Bible uh, dealing with how to build a relationship with God. What an important thing for us as a young church. We, we took some time and we talked about how to build a church, showed you the things that this church needs to have. And all our goal in building people and doing things uh, in, a, in our church ministry as our ministries grow in time. Right now we're small, we're just getting our feet on the ground, but in time you'll see these avenues of ministry open up. It's just the natural way that it goes. But first and foremost is the fact that we must build our own personal relationship with God. This church will never be, this church will never be what it needs to be uh, other than the individual people that are in it being what they need to be. And uh, if you're going to build a, a skyscraper, you've got to put a foundation down deep. You just don't build it on the surface. It's got to go down deep before it can go up. And that's the way it is in our Christian life. We need to go down deep before we can go up. And our job here is to help you do that by talking to you about building a relationship with God. And we have taken the last three or four weeks and really defined uh, for you a doctrinal issue that uh, is paramount to every Christian. And that is the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the word doctrine means to teach. And the Bible says that that's what it's, the Bible was written first and foremost for, for doctrine. The Bible says that the Word of God is profitable. And the first thing it's profitable for is for doctrine. So uh, we put a lot of emphasis on teaching what the Bible says and showing you uh, things for your life that are defined in the Word of God. And that is something that is missing today in Christianity. And that is the ability for God's people to define things in their own lives from the Word of God. So we have been defining for you, and we'll continue to, to define as we move through our, our study here. Uh, and this is just one aspect of it, because the most important doctrine for the church is the judgment seat of Christ. I told you as we studied it, there's two days in the Bible. One of them is called the Day of the Lord. That's the second coming of Christ. That's God's day. The other one is the Day of Jesus Christ. That's the rapture of the church and the judgment seat of Christ. That's Christ's day. For you and for me, uh, the Day of Jesus Christ is very important because someday the Bible says we're going to stand and give an account. Now, in, we, we looked at a couple of references last week, obviously 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We also talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But two phrases there is what I want to start with today. You don't have to turn back there. I want you to be in Job chapter 26 here. But the two phrases that I want to talk about is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of them is in verse 3, which says that, uh, that uh, we have an earthly body and we have a spiritual body. And the Bible says about the judgment seat of Christ that we do well that we don't appear naked before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the other verse talks about the fact in verse 11 that the judgment seat of Christ is called the terror of the Lord. And the thing that I want you to understand is this. And for years and years and years and years, I, I heard this taught. I heard the taught that at the judgment seat of Christ, God was going to, you know, whip us and beat us and, and, and just, you know, uh, make us feel uh, terrible for what we didn't do, you know, and all the things that we should have done. And, and I hope that uh, if you thought that or believed that, that coming through our little biblical aspect of sinner, son, and servant, you now see how that is not true. But let me just tell you for a second and give you an idea here of what is going to be so terrible about the judgment seat of Christ. Here's the kicker. And when you understand this, it would be much, weather, much better to get a good whipping from the Lord than to have this happen. But here's what's going to happen. At the judgment seat of Christ, when the rapture, excuse me, when the rapture takes place, you're going to get a glorified body. When you get that glorified body, it's all going to, you're also going to get the glorified mind, the mind of Christ. In other words, you're going to get into your cranium what is in this book right now in its entirety. And for all practical purposes, at that point, you're going to know everything that God knows because the Bible says that you're going to get the mind of Christ. You're going to get a glorified body like Christ, and you're going to get His mind. And when that takes place, for the first time in your life, you are fully going to realize, fully going to realize everything that we have preached to you in the last couple of weeks. You're going to fully understand the cost. You're going to fully understand the consequences. You're going to fully understand all of those issues that we talked about. And for the first time in your life, you're going to actually realize what this life was all about. You're going to finally see it without you or myself in the way. You're going to finally see it in its purest form, 
understanding it in its entirety, exactly the way God wanted us to see it. You're going to see now and fully understand what Christ did, why He did it, and we're going to be faced with the foolishness of everything that we did that let us get off track while we were on here on planet Earth. In other words, we are going to finally and fully see everything that God had, everything that God wanted, and we're going to see how that we missed it. And it isn't going to be a fact, it isn't going to be the fact that you're going to be sorry because of the fact that you didn't do what you should have done. Though that's going to be part of it. It's going to be the fact that you're going to fully realize now what He did for you. And you're going to fully understand and realize how little we did for Him. To me, that's where the terror is going to be. The terror of looking into those eyes that loved me, look into those hands that still bears the nail scars, Look into that side that still has the scar from the Roman spear, recognizing fully and understanding the agony of those three hours on the cross when God turned His back on His Son, and fully understanding that He turned His back on His Son for me because He wanted me to fulfill something for Him and me because of all the foolishness of my life and what I was doing and just did not pay any attention to the Word of God, the things of God, or whatever, missed it. There, my friend, is going to lie the tragedy of the judgment seat of Christ. Because the real issue is, you're not going to get anything in a glorified body that you can't have right now in this book here. Now, you may not understand it all like you will then, and you may not, you may not, you may not uh, put it all together like you will then, but you have everything you need in this book to get you through this life that you do not have to stand there and look at Him knowing that you did not do what God wanted you to do. Now this morning I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you about, I'm going to get a little personal with you and a little honest with you this morning. I'm going to talk to you about some things that bother me about the Bible. I love the Bible. I always love the Bible. There's never a day, no matter where I'm at, that I don't recognize what the Word of God is. But I must confess to you today, when it comes to the Bible, there are some things that I fully don't understand that bother me. And when I look at the Bible, <clears throat> you know, I look at it differently than probably uh, most people. A lot of you look at it the same way. I believe the Bible is, is the complete, absolute, inspired Word of God given to us in the English language exactly the way God wants to have us. I think that if God is going to judge us someday by the Word of God, He had to give us that Word so we'd have something to see, otherwise He couldn't judge us. Now, that's where I'm at. I believe it's alive. I believe it's alive. Years ago, when I was just a young kid, and we used to, uh, we used to get, I used to hang out with some older Christians, and I was trying to find my way along, we'd go down in a square in Canton, Ohio, and we'd, we'd do street preaching. And we'd get out there and we'd, we'd try to get a crowd. And, and you know, I, I, I was just a young guy and I went a couple of times and just watched, you know, before I got to get up and do it. But I watched how these guys did it. And it was kind of comical when you think back on it. But one of the tricks we, we, they did, first time I ever went, it was this guy standing. We were on a square on a busy uh, afternoon. And people were walking up and down the street and he got this big Mexican sombrero. And he put it on the street. And... He put a Bible underneath of it. And then, for the next three or four minutes, he proceeded, he had a microphone, for the next three or four minutes, he proceeded to yell at everybody, look out for that, look out, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. And he was going up to people, and people, you know, thought there was a rattlesnake under that hat or something, you know, and he'd get a, and people would just start standing around, and, and I'll never forget it. It was kind of a unique way to get a crowd, because then once you got a crowd, and they were there, then you got a chance to preach to them. And I'll never forget, he was dancing all around saying, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. And finally, there must have been about 30 people kind of looking around, you know, and checking the thing out. Finally, a police officer came up, you know, and he broke into through the crowd and he says, what's going on here? And the guy said, well, it's alive, officer, it's alive. And he said, what's alive? That's what he was waiting for. He walked over and picked up the hat and said, the word of God. And then somebody stood in and started preaching. Now, I believe that. I honestly believe that when you sleep at night, this book walks around the house. I believe it's alive. I believe it's absolutely alive. I believe it's God's Word, and I believe it's got power in it. 
and I believe that every word, every phrase, and I believe that everything in there is in there for a reason. The fact that I can't see it is only a testimony to my stupidity, not to the book not being alive. I believe it's alive. I believe it's a live book. John chapter 21, I gave you a, a, a couple of months ago when we talked about it. He says, and many of the things that Jesus did, if, I, he said, if all the things were written down, he says, the world itself could not contain all of the books with all the stuff in it. That tells me that there were a lot of other things that Jesus did, said, places he went that aren't recorded in here. And it tells me that God handpicked what he wanted and put it in a book because it means something. When I saw that years and years ago, it changed my whole perspective about the Word of God, because now I knew there was nothing in there by accident. Saying all of that, you know what really bothers me about the Bible? The thing that bothers me about the Bible is it's not just what it says. Now, most people look and they don't like the Bible because of what it says. You know, people think about the fact, well, you know, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. And somebody says, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, I got another whole terrifying concept for you. You know what really bothers me about the Bible? It's not what it says. What bothers me about the Bible is the questions that God asks. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about that or not. I'm telling you, one of the greatest studies you'll ever find anywhere in the Word of God are the questions that are asked in the Bible. Do you know what the first question is in the Bible? You'd think that God would ask the first question in the Bible because it's His book. God didn't ask the first question in the Bible. The first question in the Bible is asked by Satan. Hey, you know what the first question in the Bible is? He says to Adam and Eve, Yea, hath God said? He didn't say, Yea, hath God said. He said, it's got a question mark. He said, Yea, hath God. He, he was trying to get them to doubt, did God really mean what he said? First question in the Bible, the devil asked, and he says, Did God really mean what he said there when he said that? You know the first question God asks in the Bible? First question God asks in the Bible is after the fall, when he comes down in the garden in the cool of the day, and he says to Adam, Adam, where art thou? Now that doesn't seem like much. If somebody says, what's the big deal? You realize those first two questions in the Bible are the questions that come down all through human history? From the first two questions in the Bible, the course of human history is set. And those two questions have been asked by those two individuals from that point on on. Because you know what the devil's job is? The devil's job is you to question what God really said. You know what, you know what God's job is? The Bible says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. His job is to find out where you're at. I always thought it was an incredible thing. Adam and Eve sin. They're out there sowing fig leaves together and hiding in the bushes. And God comes down because every day they used to meet and have prayer meetings in the garden down there and have time Bible study. And it, uh, it, it, that's why I do mine on Thursday night. That was the night that they met. And, I, and, and they were coming down through there. And, and, and Adam didn't show up. And so God comes down and he said, Adam, where art thou? And I always thought that was kind of kind of unique because you go to Isaiah chapter 40 45 46 47 48 and it lays out in all these 10 chapters how unbelievably powerful God is how that he knows everything that he does everything there's no other God like him and here's God who's all of that over here and all that great powerful being and he can't find Adam well the truth of the matter is God knew where Adam was all the time it wasn't like well God says well I wonder where he's at hmm Adam, where's Adam? Anybody see Adam? And he calls down some angels, and the angel says, did you guys see Adam? No, I haven't seen him. Have you seen Adam, Michael? No. Gabriel, have you seen him? No, Lord, I don't know. He's supposed to be here. It's three. It's 7 o'clock Thursday night. I don't know where he's at. Where's he at? And finally the Lord says, well, okay, guys, here's what we'll do. Let's beat the brush for him. You guys run down through there. We'll flush that sucker out. He knew exactly where he was. When he says, Adam, where art thou? God knew exactly what bush he was hiding under. You see, the thing is that God knew where Adam was, but he wanted to see if Adam understood really where he was. When I used to deal with people in a counseling situation, and I have men or women come in, and I don't think they're Christians, the standard technique is to say, are, are you a Christian? Well, my goodness, everybody's a Christian today. I never asked that. I always, I always took my cue from Genesis chapter 
uh, at the beginning of Genesis. I always took my cue from there, and I always said to them, let me ask you a question. Where are you at in your own relationship with God? Now, see, that requires more of a complete answer, and somebody will give them, you'll tell in a 10-second answer where that person's saved or not. Because the question God is asking today and started in Genesis and all down through history is, where are you at? You know what the question is today? Saved or lost? Where are you at? Where are you at? Where are you at with this book? Where are you at with God? Where are you at with your ministry? Where are you at with people? Where are you at? Where are you at? That's the question that God asked, the first question He asked, and it's been the same question that's been asked all down through history. And the devil's first question, did God really mean what He said? He's been asking that question for the next 6,000 years. You know the issue today in, in theology? You know the issue today with Bibles? You know the issue today in churches? is simply this, did God really mean what He said? Well, you've got people now that don't even believe the Bible's anything. And you got people who just believe it's something. I had a guy tell me one time, he says, well, he says, yes, <clears throat> I believe the Bible is truth. But I don't believe the Bible contains all truth. Well, that's a nice little safe spot to be in. Problem is, it's wrong. The Bible is truth. And every other book on the planet and every other thing that man ever wrote from Genesis chapter 3 on needs to be evaluated in light of that book. Because the book's alive. So questions always bother me. I'll tell you, come looking through there, you know what I found? He said in Job chapter 9, he says, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God if he will contend with him? He cannot answer him one of the thousand. You know what he's saying? He says, how's a man going to be just to God? You people out there thinking that you're righteous and you're going to do all your things and your good works, he says, how are you going to contend with God? If God started asking you questions, you couldn't answer him one in a thousand. That's what he said. You know what that leads me to believe? God's going to ask somebody some questions. So years ago when I saw that, I started to study a little bit. I found in Job chapter 38, uh, down around verse 3, he says, he says to Job, he says, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. You know what I found in Job chapter 38? I found a set of questions that God's going to ask an unsaved evolution in the scientist, the great white throne judgment. I studied a little bit farther on and read down through there, and I found over there in Job chapter 31, I found some questions that God's going to ask Israel in the tribulation period. I got studying a little bit farther, and I read over there in Isaiah chapter 45, down around verse 4 through 10, and I found a, a set of questions that God's going to ask an unsaved man at the great white throat judgment that believed in his own power and his own strength. Then I got, I got looking at it and I got studying over there and I saw in Isaiah chapter 50, I got studying the crucifixion and I got over there in Isaiah chapter 50 down around verse 8 and I found the questions that God asked. You know what the crucifixion really is? Christ dying on the cross and all that? Yeah, that's true. But there's a battle going on there between two beings. In fact, it's the same two beings you found in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, where the first question is, did God really mean what He said? And then Jesus, God comes in and says, where are you? And here at the crucifixion, those two forces come together, and there it is in Isaiah chapter 50, the questions that God, Christ asked the devil at the crucifixion. Now, you won't find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You won't find that anywhere but in, in the Old Testament where these questions lay themselves out and you'll find that there is clear as the plain in your nose on your face is some questions that God is asking the devil on that fateful day. And so when I start to look at questions, and I, I, I started to get, I mean, it, it got a little scary for me because I, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe it's absolute truth. And I believe there is nothing in there that's there by accident, including the questions. And when I started seeing the questions that God was asking uh, there, it, it, it struck me, unbelievably, it struck me that if God is asking some questions, someday somebody's going to have to give some answers, especially after I saw Job. Now that brings me to Job chapter 26. And I'm telling you the truth, man. The thing that bothers me about Job chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, and there are six questions here. And the thing that bothers me about this more than anything else in light of what I just said is 
Look and search the Scriptures all you want and look at every people group in the Bible and look at every part of the family of God and there's seven of them and lay all those things out and I'm just telling you the bottom line. I don't know anybody else in the Bible that can answer these six questions other than New Testament Christians under grace in the time that we live in. And what I think I'm looking at, you may disagree with me, it's fine. I could care less. But the bottom line is, he said, I demand of thee an answer. God asks the questions. He don't do it just to hear himself pop off. He will demand an answer. The Bible says that. And I got a sneaking suspicion that at the judgment seat of Christ, when we sort things out of what sort it is, six questions are going to pop up. Because I look at these things, and I'm going to go through them with you. You look at these things, and I don't know of anybody that can answer these other than a child of God. Let's look at it. But Job answered and said, How hast thou helped him that is without power? How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? And how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? To whom hast thou uttered words? And whose spirit came from thee? Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We ask you now to bless us. And we ask you now, Father, to help us understand your word today. Help us take these things to heart as we study your word. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, when I look down here, I, I, I see six questions. And when I see six questions in Job chapter 26, uh, I know I'm dealing with something because in the Bible, six is the number of man. I mean, man was created on the sixth day. The number for the Antichrist is 666. You know why? Because there's three parts to that Holy Trinity, and the number of man is six. When you got three parts of the unholy trinity, it's 666. And here's six questions in Job chapter 26. It has something to do with man. And when I looked at the first question, it says, How hast thou helped him that was out power? Well, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. That's a question to me. Because a man without power today is an unsaved man. You realize that an unsaved man, unsaved woman has no power of their own? You realize that they are in the bondage of sin? And they don't have any way, shape, or form of overcoming anything in their lives. Oh, I, oh, I know, you know, and I, I look at all the things that man tries to help to do, you know, and I, I thank God for all the things that are out there that try to help people get a handle on things in life, and I'm, I'm not knocking it, but I'm just simply saying, until you get Jesus in your life, your problems aren't going to solve. We think, you know, well, I've got a problem. Well, let's go take a vacation. Let me tell you something. Changing geographical locations never solve anybody's problem. You're not going to solve your problem by moving away. You solve your problem by dealing with them with the Word of God. Alcoholics Anonymous is a great organization, and I've used them with people that, that had to, because in, in, in part they do a great job. But you know what their philosophy is? Their philosophy is that you'll always be an alcoholic. That you'll always, any alcoholic, member of Alcoholics Anonymous, that he hasn't had a drink in 20 years, you know what he'll say? He'll say, well, I'm still an alcoholic, I'm a recovering alcoholic, because uh, at any time I could go back into it. Well, I got a better deal than that. My Bible says, if any man be in Christ, a new creature, all things are passed away, all things become new. I got a deal that'll make you a new person. And you see, we, we think that those things, uh, whether it be sin, whether it be drugs or alcohol or depression, whatever it is, uh, an unsaved man has no power over them. Because those are part of his old nature, what he, he is stuck in, and he can't get around it. And that's why the Bible says that to as many as received him, gave he power to become the sons of God. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. An unsaved man, he has no power. An unsaved man has no power. He has not the ability to overcome the things in life. You say, well, I knew a guy that was an alcoholic, and he overcome, and he hadn't got a drink, and he made a great million dollars uh, when he went uh, into the corporate world, and he's successful, and he's not an alcoholic anymore, and he's not this. Oh, that's great. He overcame alcohol. He built a great empire. He made millions of dollars, and then he died and went to hell. You know why? Because... In all of that, he couldn't, he didn't have the power to overcome the first thing in his life that he seemed to overcome. Sin. Sin. Sin binds us. 
I look at the life of Samson. What a picture of a, of an un, of a, of a child of God who just, who gets all caught up in, in the sin and, and his life gets ruined and the life gets wrecked. But in the life of Samson, there's three things that, about sin that are absolutely true and it's taught in the book of Proverbs and you see it displayed in his life. Because it's true in an unsaved man's life or a saved man's life. You know what it is? Sin, sin, first of all, sin blinds you. Second of all, sin grinds you. Boy, when you look at Samson's life, he lost his eyes. He was blinded. Sin binds you. He got bound up in his sin and he couldn't get away. And finally, the Philistines take him and strap him to a grinding wheel and he's there as a, uh, in a filthy, despicable way of naked pushing that old grinding wheel Well, they made love fun of him and laughed at him and his sin not only blinded him, not only binded him, but his sin ground him, grinds you. It binds you, it blinds you, and it grinds you. And more and more we see it all the time and everything. You don't have the power. An unshaved man doesn't have the power. But I want to tell you something. You and I have the power, have the power to forgive sin. What is that? You and I have the power to forgive sin. Not you personally. But if you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you and have the Word of God in your heart and in your hand, the Bible says, Jesus said, He said to His disciples, He said, I'm going to send you out and you're going to go to the highways and the byways and you're going to preach the Word of God and you're going to bind and loose sins. I get that question all the time in, in Bible study. What does it mean we have the power to bind and loose sins? It's simple. I meet an unsaved man. I tell him the story of Christ. He has no power. I tell him how he has no power. I tell him he needs to get saved. He needs to get saved. He says, I will get saved. I open up the Bible and I show him how to be saved. You know what I've just done? He gets saved. I just loosed him from his sin with this book. If I show him the Word of God and I show him his sin, he knows he's a sinner, but he says, no, I'm not going to get saved. No, I'm going to do my own thing. Thanks, but no thanks. And he goes his way and I'll go mine. The Word of God has just bound him to his sin. I guess Acts chapter 8 is probably the greatest example of anywhere in the Word of God about soul winning. Because here's Philip who's down there having a great revival. Philip's down there having a great, great, great revival. And he's having some great results. And he's, he's just really, uh, people are getting saved all over the point place. And then God pulls him out and sends him on the back side of the desert to an Ethiopian eunuch. And there he's, and the story is incredible. There he is. God plops him down in the middle of that desert. There's an old Ethiopian eunuch sitting on the backside, sitting on his chariot. And the Bible says he is reading a copy of Isaiah chapter 53. Wow. What is Isaiah chapter 53 all about? It's about the death of Christ on the cross. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, hey, who am I reading about here? Is this, is this about Jesus? That prophet? And I often looked at that story and I thought to myself, my, 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 my. There it is. There is a picture in point of a child of God loosing somebody from their sins. But you know what you got? We won't know till we get home to glory who gave that Ethiopian eunuch a copy of Isaiah. That's an incredible thing to me. Now I promise you it was no accident that he got a copy of Isaiah. I'm telling you. The Bible says that the Son of God is coming to seek and to save that which is lost. By the way, you see both questions involved there. Both questions are involved there. Jesus says, where art thou? You know what the Holy Spirit of God is asking that Ethiopian eunuch? Where are you at? What was the devil's question? Did God really mean what he said? So the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip, who's he talking about here? God was working on him. The devil was working on him. Somebody gave him the copy of Isaiah. I don't know where he got it. It'll be fun. To, it'll be fun when he get home to glory to learn all these things. We'll really get to know who shot JFK. We'll get to know all of those things. And it'll be an incredible thing when you when we get home to glory to find out where and who did this guy get this copy of Isaiah. And then he just happened to what? Did he have a flat tire in his chariot? What was the deal? 
Horse is tired. He have to water. We have, what was the circumstances? Why did he pick that spot? Why? Because God said, pick that spot, read this chapter, and here he is. And then God brings somebody to him. You know what the Bible teaches by all of that? It shows me very clearly, plainly, that God prepares sinners. God prepares sinners. He prepares sinners. Right now, while we're here, somewhere out there, somebody connected to your life who is lost is working through some things because of something you said or something somebody else said or something they heard here or whatever, and right now they are thinking those things through. And you know what God's doing? God is preparing sinners. That's His job. The Bible says the Son of Man has come to seek and to say that was lost. He's the true light of the light. Every man that cometh into the world and every woman, every man is faced with that, con- uh, that idea of God and Christ, and God asks that question, where are thou? And they're reading the Bible, and they keep mulling it over, and God keeps dealing with them, and dealing with them, and the question God keeps asking is, get honest, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? you, you they hear something, and in their mind, they, they try to put it aside, and the Holy Spirit of God says, no, where are you? God forces us to look at where we're at. Because God asks unsaved men, where are you at? Where are you at? Did you ever see the question in the Bible God asks Christians? He asks unsaved men where they're at, but he asks God's people, who are you? Who are you? That's something to go through and study. I'm not even going to tell you more where it's at. I'm going to make you find it yourself. But them questions, they kill me, man. Kill me. I wish somebody would come out with a translation that just took all the questions off. I'd buy that. Because you see, when I read my Bible, if it's just statements, I can preach them to you. But if it's questions, <laughs> i got to deal with them. I mean, they put out new Bibles that take all the these and the vows out, don't they? Put out a Bible that takes out the she's and the he's. Or take the he's and put in the she's, whatever they do. Why don't they put one in just take all the questions out? Because somebody's going to have to answer them. And that Bible says, how savest thou the arm that hath no, or excuse me, it says, how hast thou helped him that it was out power? That's an unsaved man. And I got a sneaking suspicion that when I get to the judgment seat of Christ, God's going to ask me how I helped unsaved people. He's going to say, Bob, I put you down there. I saved you for a reason. I gave you a Bible that told me my whole plan. And you know what? You had one, you had one job. You had one job. You had one job. You had one job. And that job is to be a lighthouse for me and to win people to Christ, and talk about me, and I told you that if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me, and I put you down there, and he had one goal, that one goal, that is to emulate me and my spirit and my power, that people would see you and be drawn to that light and get saved. Bob, let me ask you a question. How hast thou helped him that is without power? Unsaved people. Then the second question. He says, How savest thou the arm that hast no strength? Now, I'll tell you right now. The first question he's asking has to do with unsaved people, no power. But this question has to do with the arm that hath no strength. That's a young Christian. You see, this person here, whoever it is, how savest thou the arm? He's part of the body. He's part of the body. He's not like the man that hath no power. This man is the arm. He's, how savest thou the arm that hath no strength? This young man here, this young man, this person he's talking about here is part of the body, but he has no strength. That's a young Christian. A young Christian gets saved. Hey, let me tell you something. Right now, if you're a young Christian, the moment you got saved, the moment you got saved, you have living within you all the power that God has when He created the universe and the galaxies. If you, the moment you got saved, you now have that power in your life. Somebody says, "Well, how come I'm struggling with the way the things that I am?" Because you have the power, but you have no strength yet. You have to take power and develop it into strength. That's our job. 
John 15, 16 says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Oh, everybody loves that verse. That's the verse the preachers always use to try to manipulate you to go out and win people to Christ. That you're ordained. The day you got saved, you're ordained to go and bring forth fruit. That'll get out there and win them to Christ. But read the rest of the verse. And it says, and that your fruit should remain. Anybody ever come to this church, gets involved for a little bit and goes somewhere else or don't go anywhere or whatever, I hope that never happens, but I, I know that it will. But the one thing I make sure that it, it, the reason why it never happens, it'll never happen because somebody wasn't willing to spend down time with them to teach them the Bible to help that arm who has the power of God in their life the day they got saved but has no strength develop that power into strength. That's our job. Proverbs 27, 23 tells me as a pastor that I'm to be diligent to know the state of my flock and to look well nigh till I heard. You know what that means? That means every time you open up the book to teach the Bible, every time you work with somebody to help somebody, you're looking out for them and you know what the bottom line is and you take the Word of God and you give them everything that they need to give them the best chance they can. You see, the devil's plan is real, real simple. It's not hard. It really isn't. The devil's plan, plan one, plan A is this. Plan A is to get you and me in hell. That's plan A. That is the devil's plan. The devil's plan is to get you to doubt God's word, yea, hath God said, and to get you to the point where he gets your soul in hell. You say, well, I'm saved. Here comes plan B. Plan A failed when you got saved. So he moved to plan B. Devil knows he can't get you, in, get you in hell. You're saved now. So what he's going to do is to use the same questions to get you off track so you'll never plug in to be the powerhouse that God wants you to be so others around you will go to hell. So simple. If he can't get you, he'll get your mother. If he can't get you, he'll get your father. If he can't get you, he'll get your sister. He'll get your brother. He'll get your aunt. He'll get the guy you work with. He'll get the he'll get the he'll get your girlfriend. He'll get your boyfriend. If he can't get you, he will get he will get you off track to the place where if you can't get you to doubt what God said about eternity and salvation, that he'll get you to doubt what God said about the victorious Christian life of just believing the book and living it by faith. It's simple. Get how you overcome that? You take the power that you get the day you get saved and you develop that power into strength. How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? How do you do it? You exercise it. So easy. I don't know how anybody can miss it. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 12 says, and the writer of Hebrews says, he's talking to somebody and he says, for when the time you ought to be teachers... You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and become such as have need of milk and not meat. For everyone that uses milk is an unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat, the Bible, doctrine, the Bible, strong meat, belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Exercise. 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 When you get saved, our job is to put you on an exercise program. A spiritual one. We do it on Thursday night. We do it on Sunday morning. We do it one-on-one. -on -one. Where you sit down and you have a chance to exercise your understanding about the Word of God. Asking questions. Finding out this. Putting two and two in together and coming up with four instead of six. And pretty soon you learn how to do it. And you learn how to... And pretty soon you're not just dealing... What Jesus said one time. He says, if you're faithful in the little things, He says, I'll make you ruler over many things. Now I know that verse is talking about the millennium. I understand that. But in a practical sense, if you're faithful in the basic little things, that you do right now for God, God takes those and adds to those, and in time, through that exercise, He develops you that pretty soon you understand the big things. That's why most pastors, when they start out building the church, and they get a small group coming, they want to electrify the crowd. 
So they'll pick some, they'll buy a full page spread or put an ad out front of the church and talk about the fact, going to study the book of Daniel, going to study the book of Revelation. Come, because they want to hook everybody because everybody's interested in prophecy. And anybody will come. Somebody, I promise you right now, if you went out to your friends and said, hey, Bob Alexander is going to teach this great study this coming Thursday night. He's going to teach this great study about, about uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, what really happened in the Kobe Bryant case and, you know, who shot JFK and, and who did this and you know, all that and, you know, uh, who Charles Manson really was, you know. And, and he's going to show you, he's going to teach the book of Revelation. He's going to name the Antichrist and he's going to show you and he's going to give you the time, the date that Christ is coming out. This place will be packed. You go to that same person and say, hey, you know what? Thursday night, we're going to study the book of Ecclesiastes and we're going to go through every philosophy that man got and find out where it's stands and find out why this world got in the mess that it's in today. You'll be here. <laughs> Maybe. It depends if you can get survivor taped or not before you get here. Why? Everybody's interested in the exciting stuff. Oh, well, I'm telling you, yeah, that's exciting. But you know what the bottom line is? That ain't going to help you a bit tomorrow when you've got to go out and face the things you've got to face at work. It ain't going to do a bit tomorrow if you've got parents or you've got brothers and sisters that give you or friends that give you a tough time because you love the Bible and trying to learn the Bible. I'm, I'm telling you. I'm just telling you. The issue needs to be that you have to lay, we talked about it, we lay the foundation and then we build upon that foundation gold, silver, and precious stones. And I'm telling you, Questions in the Bible or something else. And when you get saved, God, God brings you to the place where God brings you to the place that He, he exercises you. He brings you to the place where He just He He He, he exercises you. And He He you you just like going to a gym. I mean, I watched this that Russian guy one time and I, I watched him this guy picked up this this Russian guy, he was a weightlifting championship of the world. And I I saw it on television. This was years ago. I think he, he may even be dead now. Uh, but, uh, you know, if he's not, I don't know why he isn't, the way he's lifting all that weight. But this guy, I don't it was incredible. It was something like 70,000 pounds or something. It was a lot. And uh, no, I ain't kidding. You know, they have a steel bar. I have a steel bar, and I ain't kidding. When he picked this thing up and got it there, that steel bar was bending. And he's grunting and groaning, you know, and I mean, every muscle on his body is popping out, you know, and he gives that last jerk, you know, and, and he throws things up over his head, and it was like, realistically, it was like 600 pounds. I don't know what it was, 600 pounds. It was incredible. I looked at that guy, and he, I always like it when they, I don't care that they, I like to see him throw it down. That's the great part to me. It's just like, and he just throws it down, and the whole building shakes, you know, and the weights bounce, you know, and uh, it, to me, that was the whole test of it. But anyway, 600 pounds. And I watched that and I thought to myself, that's incredible. But you know what? I promise you, last week, last week, he wasn't shopping with his wife at the grocery store and saw a Wheaties box with some weightlifter on it and said, oh, I can do that. He didn't just write his name in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Paul Bunyan. I want to lift 600 pounds and we're going to go for the world weight champion of the world, you know. And he walk in there and just pick that thing up. 600 pounds? Yeah, slap a little more on it. Yeah, that's good. Okay, let's see here. Whoa, yeah, okay, okay. And he just picked that up. He didn't do it that way. He started out, I don't know, I don't know how much he weighs, but I think if I remember right in my weightlifting days when I was in the Olympic weightlifting team, <laughs> I think you start out with half your body weight. In my case, I only weighed 20 pounds, so I started with 10. And you know what? You put that weight on there and you start, you start working it. And then you do all kinds of things. And you learn how to lift so you don't hurt your back. Because I'll tell you what. I mean, you can, you can do some serious damage lifting 600 pounds if you don't know how, what you're doing. I mean, that's a lot of weight. And he, you put that, put that weight on, you start working it. And you start working it. And you start doing all kinds of work playing with it. And pretty soon, then you, you're, and they, they, uh, they, you can tell I've weight, they call it burns. You get burns in your arms. Burns in your arms, you know, and you feel your muscles are stretching. So you want that burn, man. You want that burn. And if that doesn't work, you get some steroids. You just anything will work, you know. And you, you work them weights, and pretty soon you're comfortable with that. And then you slap on some more weight. Pretty soon you're up to 200 pounds, and you're, you're doing really good with that. And then pretty soon you're burned. You got the burn, man. And you put another 50 pounds on, now you're 300 pounds. And then you got the burn. You got the, and you put another, and pretty soon you're up to 400 pounds. And then you put the, you know, 500 pounds. And you're working that and working that. And you get to 600 pounds, and you just, 
you get that thing where you can you almost you got it just a little bit there. You don't want to burn too much here because you'll kill yourself. So you just you just you just now this tape is going to go all over the world <laughs> as a weightlifting seminar, and that's not what it is. And then after a while, you build that thing up. You know what you do? You exercise. You exercise your legs because you know what? Hey, you can pick up 600 pounds with your arms, but if you've got pretzels for legs, you ain't going to make it. You've got to have some legs. I'm telling you right now, lifting weight, you lift it with your legs. You don't lift it with your back. You try to lift it with your back, your spinal cord will rip right out of the back. You lift it with your legs. And this guy could have, from up here, you know, and then have legs that big. I mean, put wings on him and he looked like an ostrich running out through the field, man. <laughs> Where'd you get those legs, man? No, so you work your legs. You work your arms. You work your chest. You work everything. You exercise. You don't just say, oh, yeah, here they're having a world champion. Try that at a kung fu match sometime. Oh, world champion kung fu. Yeah, I can do that. I know, I know that. You know, I can do kung fu. Yeah, you know, yeah, get killed. You gotta practice. You gotta practice. You gotta practice. Find some old guy and try to grab the stones out of his hand. And you can't get there till you can get them. And he's gotta call you a little grasshopper. Or you ain't going anywhere. <laughs> well, it's the same way with weightlifting. You gotta exercise and exercise and exercise and exercise and exercise. And you start out with, you start out with 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 pounds. And you work up and someday you get the belt that says he's the world champion weightlifter and he's got nine hernias to prove it. <laughs> well, let me just tell you. It's the same way with the Bible. You don't start out lifting 600 pounds spiritually. You start out with understanding you laid a foundation and you build on that foundation gold, silver. Learn what the gold is. Learn what the silver is. Learn what the precious stones are. Then you find out, you go back and you find out gold, what he did for me. And you look at the cost. And you look at this. And you look at the consequences. And you look at the cause. And you look at all the different things. And you add. And then pretty soon God shows you something else. And so God slaps a little more weight on the bar. And then you learn a few more things. And you put this together. And you see this. You come to Thursday night Bible study. And you learn something here. And it, suddenly that thing that you learned six months ago ties in with what you learned last night. And bang, a whole nut concept comes in. And then God slaps some more weight on you. And then you... You do some other things and you just keep growing and you learn how to build a relationship. You learn how this and you learn how that. And then God gives you an opportunity uh, to, to do this. Or, and you begin to speak to somebody at work or somebody in your family. And you begin to tell them the story of Christ. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fight. I mean, it's never going to be easy. I mean, people give you opposition and they get mad at you. But you know what? You just stay with it and you be faithful. You know why God's, you get in the opposition? God slapped a little weight on. God slapped a little weight on. And he puts more weight on and more weight on. And pretty soon you, you learn how to sidestep the issues and you learn how to, how to take the Word of God. And, you get, you, and pretty soon you're standing there at the judgment seat of Christ as the world heavyweight weightlifter of the world, man, because of the fact that you learn the Bible. And you learn to learn through exercise how to take the power that you get when you're saved and convert it into strength. That's why a young Christian... You get saved today. Can have everything that the greatest man or woman you ever met in your life knows about the Bible, who you hold up as, as man, that is my hero of the faith in this life. And that person is really knows the Bible, and God, he really, she knows, he knows, whatever. And whoever that, that person, whoever they may be, is, doesn't have any more than the guy that just gets saved today. Not an ounce. The same power that the man or woman over here that's got is the same power that young person gets or young Christian gets the moment they get saved. The difference is one took it and exercised it and converted that power to strength. The other one has all the power. He's part of the body. And I like the fact that he used how savest thou the arm. Because David talks about the arm, the hand, and Christ is the right 
hand, the right arm of God. And he says, how savest thou? Not savest in the sense of getting saved from going to hell. Savest in the sense from getting saved and then being swallowed up by the devil and never converting that power to strength. You go find the worldliest Christian you can find today who you know is truly saved and just in a totally backslidden condition. Then go find the godliest man or woman you can find today who have dedicated their whole life to serving God and put them side by side. And you know what? They both have the same exact power living inside them. The difference is one exercised and turned that power into strength. The other one never did. One of them come to the place in their life where they realized when they got saved, the devil couldn't get them to hell anymore, but they also realized that the devil was going to try to get everybody else around them because they get them off track and they dedicated themselves, exercised themselves to come to the point where nobody will ever get me off track, ever. The other person got saved, got off track. Simple as that. Simple as that. But I'm telling you, we only got through two today. I'm telling you, these questions are something else. And these questions, as all questions in the Bible, somebody is going to have to answer. Because he says, I demand of thee an answer. He says, gird up thy loins like a man. I will demand of thee an answer. You think you're so smart? You think you're so tough? You think you're so big? You think you're so intellectual? Let me ask you some questions, and you can't answer God one question in a thousand. Credible. And the only one that can answer these questions, and so far you've seen it, an unsaved man, and a child of God, an arm, part of the body, somebody who has power but has no strength. And when we come down through the rest of these next week and get through these things and finish out our study on the judgment seat, you're going to see what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with six questions that only one people group that I know of can answer, and that is you and I, and I got a sneaking suspicion. Next time we get together, when we finish the thing, I'm going to show you how they tie into the judgment seat of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you do today. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it, for its power. We thank you, Lord, for those that have come today. May the word of God be a blessing to them. And, Lord, we just love you so much. And thank you, Father, for all that you have given us, the insight, the wisdom. And Lord, thank you, Father, that you've given us a book that tells us everything we need to know. And we love you, Father. And we'll thank you and praise you. Uh, bless us throughout this week. Bless these people, Father. In Jesus' name, for the sake we ask it. Amen.